again, church. It's funny, we have less people second service than first service, but more conversation goes on, <laughs> which is great. Yeah, you're friendlier. <laughs> well, I had one more announcement that I, I uh, forgot to make uh, this morning, and uh, that is something that uh, it's real important to make. I've known this person for uh, be 20 years. She started coming to this church in 2002, and it's her birthday today, Lenar Hamilton, my secretary here at the church. Happy birthday, Lenar. And so, uh, yay. Her and Paul have just been a blessing to our family for many, many years, and we love them. And, and uh, um, anyway, so enough said with that. I'll start crying. Anyway, no, I won't cry. I'm not sensitive. Anyway, um, if you have your Bibles, we are continuing our study through the book of Revelation. We are in chapter 21, and we're going to look starting in chapter 22, because we left off, I mean, in verse 22, we left off in, in verse 21, and then we're going to make it all the way to verse 6 of chapter 22. So if you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and Kevin will get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. <clears throat> Tell my message this morning is a glimpse of heaven part 2, or what's inside the box. Now if you were here last week, that would make sense to you. <laughs> but uh, we'll see in a moment. Starting in verse 22, we read, But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall be by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 22, verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, and on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him. Then they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. Then he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the Holy Prophet sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we can spend together for your word. We thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to be, uh, to be in your word, Lord, and to know, Holy Spirit, that you want to teach us, instruct us, give us application in our lives that would change us and draw us closer to you and our relationship with you. Father, we do pray if there's anyone here that has joined us that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again today, would you especially speak to their hearts, Lord. Thank you for our time together. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I read a story about a Sunday school teacher who was telling the story of the rich young, the rich young man and, and Lazarus. She said that Lazarus sat out the rich man's gate covered with sores and begging for food. And the rich man passed Lazarus without even seeing him. But then when they both died, Lazarus went to heaven, and while the rich man found himself in hell, which the teacher described very, very graphically. 
When she had finished, she asked the children, Now which would you rather be, the rich man or Lazarus? And one little guy answered, I would like to be the rich man until I die, then Lazarus afterwards. Tell them it like it is, I tell you. See, we've been reading about this new heaven, this place where we as believers will be spending eternity together. And the thing that really stands out in our text is that heaven is a real place for real people who will be doing real things there. Heaven is not some mysterious, you know, atmospheric realm of smoke and mirrors. It's a very real place. It's a real place that Abraham was searching for. We read of him in Hebrews 11, 9, and 10, where it says, By faith, he, speaking of Abraham, dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham recognized that this world was not his home. That his real home was eternal, made by God, built by God. And deep down inside, I hope we as believers realize that as well. The Bible says that God has placed eternity in our hearts. Our our real home is in heaven and and, and the new earth that is to come. And we need to remember that. And remember that heaven is being prepared for us and we are being prepared for heaven. The things that we have going on in our lives right now are preparing us for the future. Yes, for opportunities that God will reveal during our time on this earth, but also for when we are in heaven. Listen to the way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 in context. He says, For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. See, in these last two chapters of the book of Revelation, John gives us a glimpse of heaven. And we looked at last week how it all begins. Jesus comes back. He sets his feet there on the Mount of Olives. It splits in two there in Jerusalem. He then establishes his kingdom upon the earth for a thousand years. We call that the millennial reign of Christ or the millennium for short. But after the thousand years uh, we, we have ended, God then turns his attention to the great white throne judgment. Those names not found written in the book of life shall be uh, sentenced to eternity apart from Christ in a place the Bible describes as a lake of fire. You see, the, you see, the things of heaven that we're going to look at this morning should excite us and encourage us, if you're a Christian, that the return of Christ is very near. And if you're not a Christian, this should actually terrify you, scare the daylights out of you, actually scare the hell out of you is my hope for this. You see, at this point in chapter 21, we've moved into the distant future. We saw in verse 1 of chapter 21 where John wrote this, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. And in verse 2 he says, Then I saw John, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You know, cities today, they have nicknames. You know, you have New York, it's called the Big Apple. Or, you know, Chicago's called the Windy City. New Orleans, the Big Easy. Springfield's called the Queen City. But there in Israel is Jerusalem. And it's a city set apart than other cities. It's a city called the City of God, the City of the Great King, the City of Peace. Uh, in the Bible, it's been called by others the city of the soul, or even the city of the book because of the Bible. 
But this new Jerusalem coming out of the sky for this new earth uh, is going to be different than the Jerusalem we know today. Here we see it's called the holy city. And last week we briefly looked at what the outside of this city will look like. We looked at the size of it. It's 1,500 miles square. It's huge. Uh, we looked at the whole structure is going to be made of uh, precious stones like diamonds. You know, I read uh, recently that someone did the math of it, and a 1,500-square-mile cube like that can hold 600 billion people with 75 acres per person in, in the place. That, that's huge. I, I mean, uh, massive. Uh, we know on this structure there's going to be... Uh, uh, Gate, 12 gates with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. We know the foundations are going to have the names of the 12 apostles. I had someone ask me last week, well, well, who would that 12th apostle be on the, the, the foundation? Well, clearly Judas didn't make the cut. <laughs> we know that. I think whenever you watch movies in the depiction of Jesus Christ, they always paint Judas as the guy that, you know, was, was trying to be a good guy and kind of always sympathetic towards him, uh, kind of a good guy that went bad. Listen, that's not the way the Bible presents him. He was a bad guy that went even worse. He was a fraud. He was an imposter from the very beginning. And Satan literally entered his heart, the Bible says. If Satan ever had a son, it would have been Judas Iscariot. So clearly his name is not going to be on that foundation. Well, who's then? Well, maybe it's Matthias. You remember, you remember in the book of Acts, after Judas left, uh, the 11 apostles decided they had to replace him. So they effectively voted on Matthias, and Matthias won. Now listen, you know committees don't always do a great job. It's been said that a committee is a group of the unprepared, appointed by the unwilling, to do the unnecessary. Now, I'm sure Matthias was a good man, but I'm not so sure that it was God's choice because later on we know Saul of Tarsus, who was an enemy of the church at that time, later became the Apostle Paul. And I think my personal opinion is that you'll find his name on that 12th foundation there, the Apostle Paul. But if I'm wrong, you can correct me in heaven. See, Tom, I told you you were wrong. I'll say, yeah, whatever, who cares? We're in heaven. <laughs> Get over it. But this is what we're seeing outside of this city. This is the new Jerusalem, the holy city. It's interesting that John uses the word city 11 times uh, referring to this new heaven. Again, reminding us that this is a real place. Now, the most natural question a person would ask, and after looking at the beauty of the outside of this, this place, the city, what's on the inside? I mean, imagine being, if you've ever been to Disneyland, imagine being an 8-year-old or 10-year-old and you're going to Disneyland for the first time and you pull up into the parking lot and you see the monorail going around. You know, you see the, 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 uh, um, the Matterhorn and the bobsled maybe coming down. You go, man, what's on the inside of that? You just can't wait to get on the inside and see what's going on. Well, I think the same way is true when you get a glimpse of the outside. You go, man, what is on the inside of this new Jerusalem? I mean, it is heaven. It's, it, it, it's beautiful on the outside. We want to see the inside. Yeah, we've looked at the external measurements, the materials used, but well, what's inside the box? Well, we're going to see three things, if you're a note taker this morning, of this city. Number one, we're going to see the blessings of the city. Number two, the brilliance of the city. Number three, the beauty in the city. 
Now, before we get to point number one, let me give you a quote from C.S. Lewis that I think really fits. He writes this. Our ability to imagine what eternity will be like is like two infants in a womb talking about what they will be doing once they're born and are 25 years old. I mean, imagine that. You know, that helps me out a little bit because I know whenever we talk about heaven and we do a Bible study in heaven that we're going to walk away a little bit disappointed because we really don't have that clear picture of it. I know that you would love it if I could show you a PowerPoint and, and this is when you first walk in what it's going to look like. We go through this gate, you're going to see this and this is going to be over here. But I can't do that. So now we look through a glass dimly. You know, we have a few words and visual descriptions, and we can get a little bit of a hint, but, but no, it's not anything that we can truly grasp, grasp this side of heaven. Uh, and it's even going to take us eternity exploring it once we're there. Now, with that said, we have some information that God has given to us about this great city where we will dwell eternally. And, and the first thing we're going to see is the blessings of the city. And I think one of the first blessings of this city is what's not on the inside of the city. Listen to verse 27 of chapter 21 in the New Living Translation. Nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now why would there be no one allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty? Because this is after the great white throne judgment. It's done. It's over with. Uh, this is after the second death spoken of in chapter 21, verse 8, where it says there, But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. We're going to look at that verse more specifically when we close. But this will be a new heaven, a new earth, no more sin, uh, no more, uh, you know, anything will be allowed to enter in there that, that is displeasing to the Lord or practices those things. That is a blessing. No more worrying about walking down the streets of gold and think you're going to be robbed or something or mugged or sinned against. Now, what else is not in the city that's going to be a real blessing for us? Well, look at verse 22, chapter 21. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. You know, on this earth presently, we meet, we worship together in this building. You know, we seek the Lord. We, we sense the Lord's presence here. The Jews, they would go to the temple to meet with God. Our bodies are presently a temple of the Holy Spirit. But in the new Jerusalem, this new city, we will dwell with the Lord face to face forever. It'll be great. What else is not in the city? Verse 23. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. Again, we have a, a brief glimpse of it. We can't fully understand it, but you know that it's just going to be pure light. Brilliance. And that's our second point, the brilliance in the city. Let's continue on. Look at verse 24 through 27. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall be by no means enter into anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
We know that on the fourth day of creation, God created the sun, the moon, the stars to illuminate the earth and to mark the passing of seasons, the passings of years. In this new creation, none of that will be. There will be no more seasons, no more need for, to light in that way. There will be no more darkness. Our new source of light is the glory of God. The Lamb is its light. You know, Jesus is like the Bible says in John 8, 12. I'm, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. See, God will finally uh, fulfill his original purpose with mankind, fellowship with him. This is where Jesus' words in Matthew, or rather John 14, 1 through 3, really ring out. Where he said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, that you may be also. Now, in this new Jerusalem, this eternal place that has been prepared for us, the church, the bride, as our eternal abiding place with Jesus Christ, we now get to see the beauty in the city, point number three. You know, every city, they have a main street. You know, Disneyland, again, I'm back to Disneyland. But, but they have the main street, and they have all their shops and everything on there. You go in some of these old, quaint towns, and they're, you know, where's Main Street? And they have these little shops on either side, and it's really cool. Well, this is, this is the city that Main Street, like you've never seen. Look at verse 1 of chapter 22. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. When you think about how beautiful our creation is right now, I mean, think about the oceans and the mountains and the trees and and the beautiful skies and and just the glory. You can't imagine how beautiful this this creation will be. But most of all, it will be so beautiful because the glory of the Lord will fill this place. The pure river of the water of life, clear as crystal, will flow from the throne of God and of the Lamb. This will be complete fulfillment of Jesus' words in John 4.14. Remember when he said to the woman at the well, everyone who drinks of that water will thirst again. But he says to her, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life. Here's the water springing forth, the Lord says, promised to us, living water, water that's fresh, water that's alive. No, He offers that to each and every one of us even today. Not only beyond the grave, but right now, uh, here and now. He offers to satisfy the deepest thirst that man can have. I like Isaiah 58.11, which says, The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. See, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, he brings that spiritual refreshment, a satisfaction that comes because whatever you drink of this world, anything that the world has to offer you is never going to satisfy in your life. The world will never satisfy. I found this kind of graphic, gross story from Paul, late Paul Harvey from his radio show. And he told us the story of how Eskimos kill wolves. And it goes this way. It says, first the Eskimo coats his knife blade with animal blood and allows it to freeze. Then he adds another layer of blood and another until the blade is completely concealed by frozen blood. Next, the hunter fixes his knife in the ground with a blade standing up. When a wolf follows his sensitive nose to the source of the scent 
and discovers the bait. He licks it, tasting the fresh frozen blood. He begins to lick faster, more and more vigorously, lapping the blade until the keen edge of the blade is bare. Feverishly now harder and harder, the wolf licks the blade in the Arctic night. So great becomes his craving for blood that the wolf doesn't notice the razor-sharp sting of the naked blade on his tongue, nor does he recognize the instant at which his insatiable thirst is being satisfied by his own warm blood. His carnivorous appetite just craves more until the dawn finds him dead in the snow. Disgusting. But listen, Satan comes along and he feeds your taste, your craving for sin in the same way. And he'll put something in front of you and say, hey, taste this. Just, just taste just, just a little. Just taste it. And we go, okay. But, but he knows that once we taste it, we'll crave it more and more and more and more. We're never satisfied. We always have to have more be, and, and, until it becomes ensnaring and entrapping. But a life in Jesus Christ satisfies here and now. Life-giving water can come to you from the Lord as you commit your life to him. And this water of life will flow freely there in eternity. It speaks of the satisfying nature of a relationship with God. Jesus alone can satisfy the thirst that man has. He alone can satisfy our spiritual hunger. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. You who comes to me shall never hunger. And you who believes in me shall never thirst. Now here's something interesting. Look at what's in the middle of this street here. Look at verse 2. In the middle of its street, and on either side of the river was the tree of life. Stop there for a moment. Now remember, the tree of life goes back to the Garden of Eden. It first appeared in the beginning of history in the garden there, and here it is in the beginning of eternity. You might say that history, the history of the world hangs on three trees. The tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the tree that Jesus hung on upon the cross at Calvary. Man lost his access to the tree of life because he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, there are those that say, well, you know, uh, why would God put that tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden in the first place? I mean, why didn't he just leave that one out of there? Well, here's the reason. God wants a loving relationship with us. And if it's going to be true love, then love demands a choice. I mean, it would be the same thing if I told you, well, you know, I designed this computer, and every time I turn it on, it says, I love you, Tom. (laughs) I love you. I love you. I love you. Now, I could play that over a million times a day, but I don't think there would be one time that I would say, well, my computer really loves me. I'm convinced, actually, my computer hates me, but that's beside the point. (laughs) In the same way, God has created us to love him, but that love has a choice. You know, another example of this would be uh, when my wife, Lisa, said, yes, she would marry me. Now, if I were the only male on the face of this earth, I would wonder if she truly loved me or if she just puts up with me because she didn't have a choice. (laughs) That's the only one here, so I guess you're it. In the same way, God said to Adam and Eve, because I want to live with you in a relationship based upon love, I will provide a way for you to have the opportunity to reject me. I will provide a way for you to have an opportunity to turn your back on me. If you eat of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, then it will be a sign to you and to me that you don't want to maintain this loving relationship with me. See, to put it simply, if the tree of the knowledge of good and evil were not there, there'd be, there'd be no choice. And without the choice, love is questionable. Now remember, after Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were banned from the tree of life. 
Why? Well, because you don't want to eat of the tree of life and stay in that sinful state forever and ever. God didn't want them to live forever in that state. So they were banned from that tree. But here now we read, in eternity, in the new city, in heaven, the tree of life was opened up once again. And that's because of that third tree, the tree of Calvary. Jesus took the curse. Jesus took the penalty of my sin upon himself. Paul writes in Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Christ is the one that opened up access to the tree of life. So here in our new heaven, we see both the rivers of, of living water, as of life, and the tree of life. Now, one thing is noticeably different. However, there's no tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, here, because there's no possibility really of invasion or rebellion again. God alone will be man's life and the source of the knowledge of good. Man will never again try to become God. This is why it goes on in verse 2 again. In the middle of the street on either side of the river was a tree of life which bore 12 fruits. He goes on each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. So there's going to be a fruit of the month club in heaven. I like that. Twelve different kinds of fruit, one for each month. Now, again, uh, this is wonderful for a couple reasons. First and foremost, because of this, we know we get to eat in heaven. And that, that's, that's going to be wonderful. I mean, think about this. The Bible does mention different types of fruit in, in Scripture. I mean, there, there's the, the raisins and grapes and apples and pomegranates and melons and such and olives, if you consider that a fruit, and, and quite possibly the best fruit God ever created upon the face of this earth, the fig. You know, those are my favorite fruits. But imagine a type of fruit that we've never imagined before. Imagine how amazing this will be. You know, those of you that have food allergies, that you know, you can't eat certain types of fruit. You can eat these. I mean, this is going to be absolutely amazing. I mean, I don't know what, you know, other than the Christians like to do, besides spiritual things, I don't know anything Christians like to do better than, 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 than eat, you know. And, and that's what we get to do. I think of in Luke's gospel, after Jesus rose from the dead, in his glorified body, he said to his disciples, have you any meat? And they gave Jesus a piece of fish and honey and saw him eat. They knew that he wasn't a ghost or a spirit or a phantom. So the Bible says, because we'll be him, when we see him, we'll be him as he is. Like him, I believe this is reference to our glorified bodies. We're going to get to eat food in heaven. Besides, we looked at in chapter 19, we're going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So not just fruit, we're going to have a feast. So that, that's amazing because of that verse here. But, but the secondly, it'll be amazing because it says in verse 2 here, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And we say, wait a minute, bucko, hold on a minute. If the leaves are for healing... Does that mean there's going to be sickness in heaven? I thought there was no more sickness in heaven. Relax. Calm down. You know, no one has ever really calmed down when you tell them to calm down. Anyway, uh, remember, we have to read Scripture in context. And we just finished reading, there'll be no more pain, no more death. So there'll be no more sickness in heaven. But understand, the Greek word here translated for healing is literally Therapia, which is where we get our English word therapy from. Doesn't mean healing from sickness, but it means a maintaining of health. In fact, the original language implies exhilaration and invigoration. Now, I don't know about you, but nowadays I seem to be getting more tired than I used to. 
So much more that I'm tired of being tired, if you can relate to that. It's been said, you know you're getting old when your idea of happy hour is taking a nap. Um, (laughs) But in heaven, we're going to be invigorated. Man, we'll be shooting down the rapids of the river of life. We'll be eating of the fruit of the Spirit, revived eternally by the leaves of the tree of life. I mean, we're not going to get wiped out. We're not going to get burnt out. We're going to be just excited and, 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 and full of energy the whole time. What a wonderful place to be in. What a wonderful place to be on the inside. I read a story of a little boy named Billy who was caught getting in trouble going in and out the front door all the time and slamming the doors. And, and, and his mother finally turned to him and said, how do you expect to get into heaven? He thought it for a moment and said, well, I'll just run in and out and keep slamming the door until they say, for heaven's sake, either come in or stay out. Then I'll go in. How great this will be for us as believers. How tragic it will be for those on the outside. Look now, verses 3-5, through five, as John presents us with seven shall statements of what heaven shall and shall not be like. Verse 3, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. They shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. This is a sure thing. This will happen, this will not happen, for the word shall here. Verse 3, let's break it down. It says, and there shall be no more curse. you got to love that one. You know, the curse came back in the garden. Adam and Eve, remember, once again, they ate of that forbidden fruit. A curse came upon them. Uh, here the curse is going to be lifted. Think about this. What was one of the symbols of the curse? You know, man working in the garden, right? But there would also be thorns. Thorns on, on the bushes. Thorns. And that's really interesting when you think about what Jesus took upon himself when he was crucified. They wove together a crown of thorns and placed it down into his scalp, causing deep and painful lacerations on his head. What a perfect picture of what Jesus did for us, taking upon himself the curse of the thorns that we rightly deserved. See, Jesus is the one that freed you and I from the curse so that when we get to heaven, there will be no more evidence of the curse at all. But, verse 3 says, But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. That's a done deal. It will happen. Today we approach the throne of God through prayer. We come boldly before the throne of God, finding grace and help in our times of need. When we get to heaven, you know, uh, we, we will be with Him. We'll approach Him face to face. In fact, that's what verse 4 says. They shall see His face and His name shall be on their foreheads. I alluded to this verse earlier, 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. For now we see in a mirror dimly, <clears throat> but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. We'll see the Lord face to face. We'll understand all this stuff. Verse 5, there'll be no more night there. Or there shall be, the, 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 the sixth shall. There shall be no more night there, no more darkness to cover the sins of man who rebelled against God because there's going to be no more sinful men in there, no more wickedness there. Finally, verse the seventh shall is, and they shall reign forever and ever. Now, I don't know about you, but I am really, really looking forward to this place, to this time. 
Again, how great it's going to be for us as believers, but how tragic it'll be for those who are on the outside of this beautiful place that we just read about. Let's look at those on the outside. Drop down to verse 15 of chapter 22 for a minute. We read there, but on the outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. We see another list of this back in verse 8 of chapter 21. And I mentioned this earlier. I want to go through these things a little bit, a few of them. We read in verse 8 of chapter 21, but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You know, that verse alone should lie to rest that once and for all the idea of a second chance after death. It's been said there's only one way to stay out of hell, but there's no way to get out of hell. Once you're there, you are there. There's no escaping. And outside of this beautiful place that we've just caught a small glimpse of are those that have lived godless lives. Those that have said, I don't want anything to do with Jesus Christ. I want to look at the way they're described here. Uh, again, back in verse 8 of chapter 21 and in verse 15 of chapter 22. The first people we see on the outside uh, in verse 8 of chapter 21 are the cowardly. The cowardly. Now in context, it speaks of those who are afraid to stand up for Jesus. You know, today, it takes courage to stand up for Christ. It takes guts especially living in the world that we're living in today, because if you're truly a follower of Jesus Christ, you're going to stick out like a sore thumb. You're going to be someone that is ridiculed, someone that is mocked, laughed at. You're going to be someone that's going to lose friends over your relationship with Christ. You're going to be the odd man out no matter how you look at it. I feel really bad for, for our kids today, our youth today. They're always pressured. Hey, man, let's go have a good time. I mean, it was the same when I was a kid, but it's worse today. And having a good time is, let's go drink, let's go party, let's, you know, let's go have a good time out on the lake. And that's difficult because you, you want to have friends. You, you want to not be looked at as weird, but you also love the Lord. And you're placed in those situations uh, to compromise. And the question really comes down to this, are you willing to not compromise for Christ? Because Jesus said, whoever confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is not just an, an outwardly denying and saying that you don't know him, but it's speaking out for him as well. I think many people are kept back for fear. Well, I'm just afraid what my, my friends might think of me if I, if I became a Christian. I'm afraid what others might say to me. Or I'm afraid of this. Or I'm afraid of that. Let me tell you. I wasted two years of my life afraid of what my friends would think. I heard the gospel when I was 17 years old and I wanted to commit my life to the Lord. Then I had my buddies on either side and they were making fun of the whole service and I, I wouldn't do it. But I wanted to. The Spirit urged me to do it and I didn't do it. Two years later, I came to faith in Christ. Wasted two years. Listen, I don't care what your friends think. You make a stand for Christ. You come to Christ today if you don't know Christ. Because the Bible says if you don't know Christ, you'll end up on the outside. So you want to have courage. You want to stand for something. Stand for Jesus Christ. So the cowardly are going to be the outside. Also it says on the outside with those who are sexually immoral. That word sexually immoral there comes from the Greek word pornea. And that's where we get our English word pornography from or, or, or pornographic. And it covers a whole wide group of meanings. It includes extramarital sex, premarital sex, homosexuality, 
sodomy, incest, all types of sexual contact apart from the marriage relationship. Let me be perfectly clear on this. The only time that God will bless sex is when a man and a woman, not a man and a man, not a woman and a woman, when a man and a woman are committed to one another in holy matrimony, holy marriage, then God will bless that intimacy in the sexual relationship. Now, God, God's Word says that He can bless sex. Oh, I can't believe the pastor said that. Oh, no. It's true. Listen to Hebrews thirteen fourteen. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. It's sad that, that too many couples don't look to the Lord for that blessing. Lord, pray, pray for the intimacy in your marriage relationship. God has created to bless, bless you, to draw you together with one another. You know, outside of it, 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 it all it is, you, you have to hide it. You feel guilty over it because that's on the outside of God's order. See, God is clearly saying, if you want to go outside of my order, then you'll be outside forever. If you continue to practice that kind of lifestyle, then you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So I don't, I don't agree with you, Pastor. Well, don't agree with me, but you're, you're arguing with Scripture. If you're living in a moral relationship of any kind outside of your marriage, or before you're married, if you're having sex with your boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever the case may be, you're violating God's Word. And God's Word says that if you do these things, you'll not inherit the kingdom of God. Say, but I'm, I'm a Christian. I'll still go to heaven. Well, if you're a Christian, then stop doing it. And if you won't stop doing it, then I have to wonder if you're really a Christian. Maybe you caught the news this last week. My wife brought it to my attention. There's a young man named Isaac Simmons from Illinois. He's the first openly gay man to become a candidate for ordination in the United Methodist Church. And as far as anyone can tell, the first drag queen in the United Methodist Church to ever hold a service on a Sunday morning in drag. He calls himself Miss Pentecost. In comparison to the day of Pentecost, which is total blasphemy. But he said this, and I quote, It's our way of celebrating and uplifting the voices of drag artistry within the church. Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet not do the things that I say? We read in the section of the moral, verse 15 of chapter 22, the sexually immoral, verse 8 of chapter 21, shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Along with all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now that just doesn't mean those that tell lies. We, we know that there are plenty of people that do that. But also in context, it talks about those who lie about their faith. People who call themselves Christians, who say, yes, I love the Lord, that Jesus is everything to me, yet they contradict it by the way that they live. They'll be outside of the kingdom. Idolaters are mentioned outside as well. An idol or a god with a small g is anyone or anything that takes the place of the true and living God in your life. Not only that, we read in verse 8 of chapter 21 and 15 of 22 that the word sorcery is used. And in its context, that it's used, it not only includes black magic, occultism, astrology, all those things, but it also includes illicit drug use. See, the word sorcery comes from the Greek word pharmacia, where we get our English word Walgreens from. And, uh, no. It's where we get our English word pharmacy from. Uh, and it's a word that describes the use of drugs that are specifically used in mysticism. You know, the ancient world, uh, drugs were used to dull the senses. 
produce a state, state of suitable mystical experiences such as seances and witchcraft and incantations involving yourself with mediums and so forth. And isn't that what opioids do today? It dulls your senses. A lot of people today, that they, they like to think that they need these opioids to survive without ever seeking the, the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit to be healed from the Lord. Opiate addiction is at an all-time high. You don't get an all-time high, but the addiction is at an all-time high. People's lives have been ruined by them. I think of meth, it's the same way. You, know, you look at those pictures, and they, they have, you know, you can see on the internet, this, the comparison between this, this really good-looking girl or guy, and then, you know, a year later, after being on meth, and the, the cheeks are all sunken in, there's, there's, there's sores all over their face, no teeth. That's, that's Satan's plan, to seek, to kill, and to destroy. But again, Jesus has come to give us life and that more abundantly. So the question this morning after looking on the inside of the city and the outside is, where do you want to be? I tell you this, Jesus wants you on the inside. Finally, look now at verse 6. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. So you can take them to the bank. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Now, shortly? Wait a minute. This was written some 2,000 years ago. How can this be shortly? Well, we need to understand the, the meaning of the word shortly. It's the Greek word uh, tacos. It's where we get our English word taco bell from. And it's actually a... a no. <laughs> Tachometer, actually, is what we get it from. And... and, and uh, and it means to move at an increasing speed. See, what this isn't saying is that the things that must shortly take place will happen in John's day. But rather, once the events of, of these things begin to happen, they're going to rev up like an engine. They're going to just take off like crazy. Again, years ago, we went to Disney World, and they had, at the time, this, this ride called the Test Track. And it was very cool. I think they changed it now to cars and you drive around in that. But, but it would take you through these different you know, areas where they would test the vehicle's brakes and stopping and starting again. And, and then it would get to the point where it says speed test over your head. And it would just then just take off. I mean, it was a blast because it went really, really fast. The coolest ride, I have to say. Now, I do believe that what we're seeing presently, we're kind of cruising along. We're looking at the signs around. This is test track. Jesus could be turning for his church at any moment. And then suddenly when it happens, whoosh, I mean, we're just, it's going to take off. Because the next prophetic event, and we've talked about this, this, this before, on the calendar is the rapture of the church. And once that happens, the close of human history of this earth will be launched into high gear towards its fatal destination with judgment. Now, there are some interesting verses here in chapter 22 that we will look at next time together when we look at verses 7 through 21. But I just want to look at a few more verses, and then we'll close, and we'll enter in a time of communion. We, we come to one that you might have wondered about. Look at verse 11 and 12 of chapter 22. It says, He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. Here's what that verse is saying. The decisions in lifestyle that are chosen in this life will impact us in the life to come. In other words, if you're unholy in this life now, you're an unholy in the next life. If you're godless in this life now, you're godless in the next life. If you're filthy in this life now, you're filthy in the next, next life. 
But if you're godly in this life now, you're godly in the next life. What you are now determines where you'll end up later and what will happen to you. It's been said, if you wish to dwell in a place with many mansions, you must make your reservations in advance. I, I find it interesting in the book of Revelation, when it comes to our salvation and spending eternity in heaven, the word overcome is used quite a bit, eight times from chapter 2 all the way to chapter 21. Eight is the number of new beginnings in Scripture. Jot these verses down. You can look them up later. Uh, let me give them to you. Jesus said in Revelation 2.7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Revelation 2.11, He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Revelation 2.17, To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name which is written, no one knows except him who receives it. Verse 26 of chapter 2, He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give him power over the nations. Verse three of Reve- or 5 of Revelation 3, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. I will not blot his name out of the book of life. Verse 12 of Revelation 3, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Verse 21 of chapter 3, To him overcomes, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, and also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Verse 27 of 21, He overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Over and over and over again, we see the word overcome. Eight times. John describes who that person is that overcomes in 1 John 5, 5. He says this, Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. There it is right there. You have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Strong's Concordance describes the word overcome as Christians who hold fast their faith even unto death against the power of their foes and temptations and persecutions. It's not enough just to call ourselves Christians, but it should affect the way in which we live. And I say this by way of reminder to all of us that if we're true believers, it should affect the way we live. May we live obedient lives that are holy and righteous. May we always believe that God's word is faithful and true. May we have a heart for the lost and to reach those that don't know Christ. And may we serve Christ with every opportunity that we can that he gives us. And finally, may we look forward to the eager anticipation of our our Christ's return. And that really is what communion is all about. Communion is, is entering into that place of remembering what Jesus did on the cross taking that curse that we so rightly deserved on himself so we can have our sin forgiven, our guilt taken away. We can have the hope of heaven. In fact, he said, uh, when you take this bread and you drink this cup, you, you do this in remembrance of me. Do this until he comes again, we're instructed to. So we're to do this in remembering and to look forward to Jesus' return. And I don't know, I can't help but look at all these things we just read. And I got an excitement. I want to see Jesus return soon. So we're going to celebrate. We're going to worship the Lord through communion right now. If you're here and you're not a believer, I, I pray that after reading what we read, you want to be on the inside. That you want to, if you were to die, you want to be in heaven. You want to give your life to Jesus Christ because he says that, that I stand at the door of your heart and I knock. If any man opens the door, I will come in and dine with him, have fellowship with him. So I pray that if you don't know the Lord, You'll open up the door of your heart. You'll come in, come, let him come in. You'll make that commitment to him. And you can participate in communion with us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time that we could 
close out this service, Lord, after seeing the beauties of heaven, the beauties of eternity with you, Lord, and knowing that we just got such a brief glimpse of it, Lord, it's exciting for us. I pray, Lord, that as we uh, spend time in communion, that we would examine our hearts, Lord. Lord, as your word says, see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of salvation. Lord, examine our hearts, Lord, if there's anything that shouldn't be there. Lord, help me to get rid of it. Help me to confess it. Lord, if, I, if, if I'm not standing up for you like I should, Lord, that, I confess that. I'm sorry, Lord, if I'm not speaking out for you, if I'm not living the way I should for you. I want to turn from that. I want to repent of that, Lord. Lord, if my words that are coming forth out of my mouth are not uplifting and edifying and encouraging one another, but they're tearing down, Lord, that's sin. And I'm, I'm sorry, I want to ask you forgiveness of that. Lord, if I'm living in a, a sexual, in sexual immorality, Lord, I need to turn from that and repent from that and turn to you. Lord, help us as we prepare our hearts for communion to examine our hearts and lives, to confess anything that, that this sin, Lord, and help us to worship you during this time. Bless this time, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.